This is the sound of the staff here at Focus on the Family Canada every weekday morning at 9 a.m. Petitioning God for those with crisis in their marriage, for those who want to become better parents, and those who are lifting up loved ones to the hope that one day they will know the salvation that Christ has to offer. We'd love to hear from you too. Call us today with your prayer requests at 1-800-A-FAMILY or email us at prayer at FOTF.ca. And so I want you to get acquainted with limitations. And mm. so the fast is to shut it down. Limitations, limitations, limitations. And so, and then credit, obviously, to get you starting thinking about debt. And people think, oh, it's easy. I could do that for 21 days. About day three, I start getting emails from people like, you are crazy. I can't, let, you know, because we just, we just spend so much. That's Michelle Singletary talking about some rather common reactions to her suggestion that you might need to take a 21-day financial fast from all unnecessary spending. And right there, it sounds like it might be a little harder to implement than we'd like it to be. You'll hear some encouragement to save more and to be a better steward of your finances today on Focus on the Family with Jim Daly. John, as we said last time, uh, finances can be a big problem in marriage, and really it's a symptom of our behavior. And that's what uh, Michelle's talking about in that soundbite. And if you missed our broadcast last time, get the download, the CD, or get the app for your smartphone. It's really good information, and I thought she really spoke from both her heart and her head about the importance of knowing how to spend money wisely. Yeah, she's a really winsome guest, and we're going to have details online about uh, how you can get a copy of Michelle's book, The 21-Day Financial Fast. Our website is focusonthefamily.ca, or call us, 1-800-THE-LETTER-A-AND-THE-WORD-FAMILY. Let's go ahead and join day two of the conversation on Focus on the Family. Uh, Michelle, let me welcome you back to Focus on the Family. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> well, I could see it. Your face, you're bubbly about it, and that's good. Not too many people are bubbly about their finances. <laughs> I know. But uh, you write for the Washington Post. That is no small achievement that you're a columnist with the Washington Post. That's big-time stuff. So congratulations. Thank you. I do feel blessed. Yeah. And in fact, it's so funny that the reason why I got the column and it's syndicated across the country so people might see it in their uh, newspaper was because of my grandmother, Big Mama. I, um, you know, I work at the Washington Post and, and very, um, very she talented. You. you know, oh, she was. She was. <laughs> I left my hometown paper to go to the Post and she wasn't happy about that because she wanted me to stay in Baltimore. Uh-uh. Um but when I got to the post, I was bringing my lunch. Now, in Washington, the whole thing about Washington is you have to do lunch. And so when I got there, people were like, oh, you want to go out lunch with us? I was like, do you all know how much it costs to go mm-hmm. to lunch? And so I'm bringing <laughs> my bag lunch to the Washington Post, right? right? So I'm the only person at my desk most days, you know, with my lunch. There was a couple other people who were good about that as well. And so my editor was like, you're always talking about this big mama and money. You should write a column about it. This was like, I think, in 97, um, before personal finance became sort of the the big thing. And so I wrote about what I learned from my grandmother, Big Mama. And this is even before email and Internet. We got so many bags of mail that they were just blown away. And we're talking from people from all walks of life, you know, old and young and rich and black and white and Jewish and and Christian. I mean, it was just, they were like, wow, you know, somebody who thinks like me or somebody had a grandmother like me. Um, And so that's what really started the column. I just talked about the principles that my grandmother, you know, taught me about money. Hmm. And then from there, 
I just started writing the column and now, you know, 100 clients later, newspaper clients, um, it's syndicated across the country and I couldn't be happier and I've stuck right to my roots. I'm still very simple about because the things that would take for you to be rich um, are not what people think. You know, you go to a forum and people want you to give them some stock tips or investment tips or what's the secret to being rich. Um, there really isn't a secret. It's the same tried and true method yeah. um, that for me anyway, you give first because that has to be the first thing that you do with your money to give it away to tithe, to give to your local church, to give to places like folks of family. You got that has to be top, even above your mortgage. Mm. Because if you don't, if it's last, after you pay everybody else, there's not enough. And I feel like when you put yourself in a prosper of giving first, God is gonna return it back to you. It's not a tit for tat. But he looks down and he says, Ah, oh, there's a good and faithful steward right there. Mm. Um and then secondly you know, here's the thing about what I love about this is that, you know, it doesn't take some great stock tip. It's just live below your leans. Put your head down. Save. What are your priorities? When we do studies and people say, what are your priorities? They say the right things. I want to pay my house off. I want to retire. I want to give to my church. I want to, you know, send my kids to college. But then when you look at their checkbook, it doesn't reflect their values. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just trying to align you up there. And if I could tell you this really quick story, my pastor, who's just wonderful, he did this one Sunday. He asked us how many people are rich. Now, I, I belong to a mega church, thousands of people. You could count on one hand the number of people who rose their hand. Mm. I did not hold up my hand. And I didn't for the same reason all those thousands of other people didn't because we were all in our head thinking, well, I don't have enough of my retirement. I don't have enough of this and I don't have this and, da, da, da. And, and what does he mean by that? Does he mean this? And we were all doing these calculations. And so then he asked us a series of questions. I will never forget this sermon. He said, how many of you could get up in the morning and get a clean glass of water? Mm. How many of you could open up the closet and decide what to wear? He said, how many of you have somebody who loves you? And then as he asked each of these questions, we all kind of sunk in our chairs because mm. our definition of rich was wrong. Mm. And if you use his definition of rich, if you and we talk about that in the book about being content, if you are more content, you have more money because you're not trying to get so much stuff. Well, I mean, that is well said. The The key there, though, is how much discontentment there is, right. it, especially in our culture, Western culture particularly, but certainly in America and Canada. Uh, when you look at it, um, it, it's almost like they prey on that. They're right. pushing us. They're pushing us to that discontent level. Right. Um, why is that? And then we as people of faith, how should we be responding in a culture that's indulging us. And let me ask you this too, uh, when it comes to that entitlement feeling, it's all kind of tied together. It so is. how do we get free of the snare of feeling like mm -hmm. I'm owed something? Right. And entitlement and content are two different things. Entitlement is like I deserve something. And excuse me, I had a sense of entitlement. I don't like to be cold. You know, I just don't like to be cold. And I don't want to wear a whole bunch of sweaters because I don't want a whole bunch of stuff on my body. And so <laughs> my husband kidnapped my space heater one year. <laughs> Because our energy bill was too high. He literally kidnapped it and wouldn't give it back. And then he went throughout our house and put in programmable thermostats so that it would adjust. Because during the night before he put them in, he'd go to sleep. I'd turn the heat up. I'm not even going to tell you the temperature because it's really, it's not. Oh, come on. You got Oh, to. my gosh. It was terrible. Like to 80, which is crazy. Whoa. Yes. I mean, it's like living in the tropics. I'm not kidding. Now I understand your husband's <laughs> actions. He's like, he'd, get, he'd, like, he'd wake up in the middle like a. <gasps> <laughs> he couldn't 
breathe. <laughs> what did you do? And so we had this battle all night long of turning the air, you know, the heat up and down, up and down. So he finally put in program and he threatened me. He's like, don't you touch these thermosets. Um, and, you know, he was right because I had this sense of entitlement. Why can't I throw on an extra sweater? You know, first of all, it saves our energy bill, but also we needed to be, I needed to be more energy efficient because that's a good, admirable thing to do. Now, some nights I have on footy pajamas. That's his fault. <laughs> He's not too happy about those nights. <laughs> oh, man. But those then I are just tough point. choices. <laughs> I just point to the programmable thermostat. <laughs> the way to my heart. The programmable thermostat. <laughs> No, that is good. So, so for me, I had to get rid of that sense of entitlement, that I was entitled to all this heat, which was crazy. Now, contentment, we are bombarded with messages not to be happy where we are. I personally think that's why we have such a high divorce rate, because you're not happy with the spouse that you have because you're not happy, so you got to go get another one. And we're teaching our kids that, that you can't be satisfied. I mean, we have birthday parties that are more like coronations. Mm. You know, and, and if we're having those when they're young, you know, what do they have to look forward to? I mean, my husband, who's very frugal, because I, I wanted to marry somebody who was similar to me. And when we were <laughs> dating, he wouldn't shower me with stuff because he says, if I do all this now, what do you have to look forward to? You know, he likes, he's like, you know, if I shoot for the moon, you know. <laughs> you know, Michelle, it's good. Good to hear that. But it sounds like you married well. I and did. he married well. So he you're both very did. frugal. That's not most people. <laughs> right. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the couple that's really strong struggling. Uh, let's talk to the Christian couple who's right. really struggling and they haven't been able to curb their appetites. Um, it's been a bit out of control. How do they invite God into that process? You know, there's a day in the book where we talk about couples and money. And um, I believe that you have to, first of all, I'm going to talk to people who are thinking about getting married and people who are already married. So let's start with the people who are already married. You've got to sit down and come up with a plan because you're right. Opposites tend to attract. Savor marriage is spendthrift and it calls for a lot of combustion. And it's interesting you should say it is true that people say money is the number one reason why to get divorced, but it's not the lack of money or the abundance of money. It's all those underlying issues, mm. the sense of an entitlement, you know, contentment. I mean, I grew up poor. So you have people in marriages who grew up poor who, who say, I don't ever want to be poor again. I'm going to get whatever I want because I didn't have shoes when I was growing up. And so they overspend. Or you have people who grew up in miserly homes. And so they want to overspend because they were denied so much as a child. Mm. Or you have people who grew up in homes that were good. They had money. And so now they're trying to repeat that situation. Um, and so what I tell couples is get to the root first mm -hmm. because you can't heal that unless you know what's going on. And how do you get to the root? I believe in Christian counseling. I believe talk to your pastor. Get into a program at your church. My church has a number of programs. Um, and so you got to come up with a plan. And so we have in the book, I talk about house rules. So, for example, you know, you have to have a, a my husband came up with this. You have to have two yeses and one no. So unless you both agree to something, you can't buy it. Took us eight years to get a dining room set. Eight years for a dining room <laughs> eight set. Eight years, because our aesthetics are different, and we couldn't agree, so we couldn't get a dining room set. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Today's media culture can sometimes send confusing messages to our children. That's why Focus on the Family Canada offers tools like PluggedIn.ca to keep parents informed about today's popular entertainment choices. 
Each month, PluggedIn.ca is visited close to 1 million times by people looking for detailed information on popular music, movies, TV, and more. Entertainment ratings only tell you so much. We go deeper, diving into specific content and the meaning behind it. Visit us online at PluggedIn.ca. I was really struggling as we walked through the aftermath. It just felt like every day was a struggle. It was hard to breathe sometimes. It was hard to just function day to day, and it was so lonely. When Carrie learned of her husband's affair, she felt betrayed by God. She lost hope until she heard a Focus on the Family podcast. The reason why I listened to it over and over again is because it felt like I was sitting down with a friend who was telling me, like, I've been there, and it's okay, and you can do this, and I promise in the end it's going to be worth it, and it just broke me in a good way. I'm Jim Daly. Working together, we can heal more broken marriages like Carrie's and give families hope. Please join our marriage restoration team. Call 800-the-letter-A-in-the-word-family. That's 800-A-FAMILY. Or donate at focusonthefamily.ca slash give. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Hey, Michelle, let me ask you, uh, budgeting can be tough. Dean and I, we struggle. We're in and out, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Mm-hmm. Um, just convince me. Why, does that, why is that the backbone? Okay, I'm going to convince you. Now, don't be offended by what I'm going to say. So, you know, there's the stereotype of guys not asking for directions, right? I bet you're kind of like that too, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what I tell folks, particularly guys, is that when you are about to take a road trip to someplace that you are not familiar with, you're going to come, you're going to find directions, right? Or you're going to use your GPS system or something or your phone or Google map or something, correct? Hmm. You have to exactly think about that with your money. You can't get to where you're going unless you have a road map. Hmm. You would never get on the road and not know what exit to take. How long is it going to get take you to get there unless you had a plan and I don't embrace this whole thing that the budget is drudgery or you know people will say oh I you know it's so restrictive Um, and then some experts say don't call it a budget call it a spending plan it's a budget embrace it (laughs) you know and here's why I did a session at my church which is where the book came from and I asked everybody to do a budget and halfway through before we proceed I want to know who's not done their budget And usually about half the people, you know, sheepishly raise their hand. One woman, I'll never forget her. She was about in her 50s. And I kept pressing, why haven't you done a budget? Why haven't you done a budget? And she she finally broke down and she said, I make really good money. And I have nothing to show for it. If I did my budget, it's going to tell me that I spend more than I make. And then I'm in really big trouble. And I just can't face that. Mm And the room hmm. got quiet, and you could see I teared up. Everybody, all the women were, you know, crying because I could completely understand. She was embarrassed. And then another person was like, well, it's going to tell me what I can't do. And I, I work hard. I grew up poor. You know, I have a good job. I don't want something to tell me what I can't have. And then I asked both of them, how's not knowing working for you? You hmm. absolutely have to know. And I'll end with this. I tell people, if Christ came back today and he looked at how you handled your money, would he say, well done, my faithful steward? Could he say that about the money that he's entrusted with you? 
I want him to be able to look at what I've done with my money and say, well done, Michelle. Mm. You've given, you helped other relatives go to college. You saved to send your kids to college so that they can do the things they want to do. My son has autism. He may not be able to be out on his own as soon as my other two kids, but I have money to help him along the way. You know, we give to the poor. We give to other causes. And that's what a budget does. See, I don't see a budget as restrictive. I see a budget as telling me what I can do. Mm. See, that's how I look at it. And that's how I want others to look at it, no matter how much you make. And I keep going back to my grandmother. She never made more than like $13,000 a year. Raising five grandkids. Raising five grandchildren. Never on welfare. Never on welfare. Hmm. And she was able to do it because she had a plan and she had a budget. Michelle, I mean, that is so good. Um, I do want to give people a couple of more handles, mm-hmm. though. Uh, you talk about two accounts that are really important to save for. You've touched on one in terms of uh, college and that kind of thing, which I think is great. We try to do that through 529s right. and other things. But you also talk about that emergency fund. Um, that one can get a little trickier. I know for me, um, I tend to, that one builds up a bit and then boom, I've right. got to use it for something, which okay, is. You've got a car repair or something. Yeah, like I mean, that. it's what it's for, but it feels like I can never really get ahead in that category. Mm-hmm. I'm always almost even. Something right. breaks, it takes about what's in there, sometimes a bit more. Right. How do you concentrate on that emergency fund? That is such a great question. And I realized that that was what was stopping people. Um, so what I write about in the book and um, when in the day we talk about saving is that really you need two different savings accounts. You need your emergency fund. That is the fund that you put money in for if you lose your job. Like my one of my kids became gravely ill, um, literally on her deathbed, and my husband and I had to take off about two months. Now, we had good health insurance and, and good leave so that we didn't have to go without pay. But say you had to go without pay. That's where you're going to pull that money from, the emergency fund. That's a dire situation. It, what's the rule of thumb on that, though? Is that... Three to six months. Three to six months. Now, here's the caveat. It depends on the type of job that you have. If you have a job like you guys, right, it's not easy to get this type of job someplace else because, like, I'm a columnist. You don't just walk into a newspaper and get a columnist's job. And so for people who are highly paid and highly skilled, and it may take you a little longer to get that type of job, you want to actually have probably a year's worth because for mm-hmm. those jobs, it takes anywhere from a year to 18 months to find that type of job. If if you're a nurse or some some job where you know you're There's the high demand, demand high demand you could get away with three to six months mm. um three at a minimum for everybody mm. so you add up everything that it costs to run your house and that's what you save and then the second savings account i call it the life happens fund that that's the fund you're going to be dipping in Putting in, taking out, putting in, taking out. The life happens. The life happens fine. You can put your vacation money there, car repair money, kids, sports programs, all the kinds of stuff that you constantly are pulling from that Mm. you may not necessarily plan for in your regular budget. And that way you don't feel guilty because that is something you're going to be tapping. It's okay to tap that fund. Right. Wow. There's so much good stuff here, Jim. And I think uh, one of the things, Michelle, I've heard time and again is you got to know what you're spending. 
and where the money is going. When my wife, Dina, went off to college, her daddy said, track your expenses, and she did. And after the first semester, she brought him the, the accounting, and he said, well, I, I didn't mean 10 cents for a candy bar. I was looking at some of the bigger expenses. So she really is very thrifty about this. But life, uh, life has a way of getting busy, and you quit tracking it. So one thing I'm going to do as a result of our conversation today is really start taking notes. Where does the money go? How are we spending that? Because I can't get the roadmap. I can't get the budget. Right. I can't plan the things that you're talking about unless I know. Right. That's hard, though. It's hard. It really is hard because you start to, and at the back of the book, I tell you, you really ought to do it like a 30-day spending journal. Mm. And you ought to track the 10 cents candy bar. Well, candy bar doesn't cost 10 cents anymore, but, you know, but track really everything. Really track it. Just, so, just for a little while so that you can see all the unconscious spending that you do. Yeah, my doctor um, might like that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I did eat that Mounds bar. Oh. <laughs> but you know, I don't people to go away feeling daunted because we said a lot of things. We said emergency fund, have that. We said have a life happens fund. If you're married, we said, you know, talk to your honey, get in some classes if they won't come. If they come, great. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk about if you're not married, but that's an important group of folks because that is the period at which you can really discern the person that you're going to marry. And here's what I tell people. If you're thinking about getting married, before you plan the reception, the wedding, pick out the napkins, pick out the gown, I want you to go to a premarital class that's several weeks, not just one session. And that sessions that have financial component to it and a co financial component that will have you pull all three of your credit reports and all three of your credit scores. You're going to put everything on the table. Now, that's when you're deciding that you're going to get married because that's the time that you share that kind of information. Now, let me ask you this, though. I, I'm hearing you clearly. Uh, you go to that as a young couple and you're the one thinking, here's my man. Right. This is the guy I want to marry. And then by session three, you're going, uh-oh, he may not be the guy. That takes a lot of courage to back up in that mm, moment. It does. And, and so often I would think a, a, a person would not put the brake on. But you're really saying if they don't know what they're doing with their money, it may be wise. Or are you saying definitely I put say the brake listen on? to the red flags. Here, here's the thing. I'm not saying that you should marry someone who has a checkered credit past. Because we are all fallible. We all sin. I'm not saying that. Don't just toss people away because something happened in their because financial life. Because of their FICO life. score. Because of their FICO score. Absolutely not. What you need to look for is, do they recognize that they had an issue, whether it was because of something they did or something that was out of their control? And are they changing? If you don't see an effort to change, that's when you put the brakes on. And I absolutely mean that you do not get married because it will not change. It will not get easier. Mm. If you're a Christian, he's got to be a Christian man. He's got to know the God and the word of God and have a thirst for it. That's what you look for. Mm. Uh, and that more than anything else, because, you know, marriage is not easy. And if you come unequally yoked and then you have someone who's not willing to change and be better, that's the issues that you're going to come mm. up with. And so that's what I tell people who are not married uh, to do that so that you and I'm not saying it's going to be easy because you can still marry your money opposite, but it'll be a little bit easier because right. you'll come up with a plan on how to handle. That. And I'm sure, again, you're all going to have to work from where you're at. So right. if you're starting with little, you're going to have to work hard. If you're right. starting ahead, you won't maybe have to work as hard. Right. Let me end with this mm -hmm. because it's hopeful, mm -hmm. Michelle, and I, I think that's a wise way to go. Uh, you had a friend, Juanita, who took this fast, the 21-day fast, the title of your book, and uh, she applied it to other areas of her life. Tell us what happened with Juanita. Yeah. 
I'm going to try to tell her without crying because she was amazing. Um, and I'm so glad we're going to end on this because um, I don't want people to think that this is impossible because nothing is impossible with God. Mm. Nothing. Whether you make minimum wage or six-figure salaries, nothing's impossible. So Juanita was such a faithful steward. And she was like my little groupie. And she did the fast. And uh, she organized her life. Um, to the point where um, she tragically passed away in a car accident around Thanksgiving. Mm. Uh, and um, her family it was so tragic that her family couldn't bring themselves to clear out her apartment. And she was on my leadership team at church. And so they asked us to clean out her apartment. So we went in there. And you know, when somebody passes away, you're thinking, oh, the stuff I have to wade through. We walked into her apartment and it was the example of someone who was completely content with having only what she needed. So in her closet, it was half empty because she only needed like two coats. She only had like two dish settings for her and a guest. I mean, it was just amazing how little she had because she didn't need so much. And all her files were organized, her insurance records, her computer records, everything. We we didn't have to wade through anything. It was amazing. Amazing how organized all her financial files were, all her clothing, her dishes. She didn't even have a trash can because she didn't generate a lot of waste. Mm. And it, it put me to shame. And I'm very frugal. Our whole leadership team, we just had to stop at one moment and just pray because we thought this is what we should be doing mm. to live a life. She was abundantly wealthy without having a lot of stuff. And it, it turned out to be a blessing to her family because they didn't have to worry about anything. And we were able to pack her up in a couple hours. Hmm. It was just a testimony to someone who went from $100,000 in debt to no debt and then tragically passing away. And in her passing showed us what it meant to be rich. And there was some left over for her family. And she had money and things left over for her nieces because she wanted to help them and her family. Hmm. And um, I just, I wish I could be more like her because I look at the stuff I have even in my house and I still have more than I need. What a great story though, Michelle. Michelle Singletary, author of the book, The 21 Day Financial Fast. Thank you. Um, in so many ways, may we all be more like Juanita. Hmm. And uh, in that way, when we end, no matter how we end, to be right with the Lord, and uh, leave an impression with those around us that they would say the same thing. Right. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Uh, great to have you with us. Thank you. Well, what a meaningful way to end our conversation with Michelle Singletary for the past couple of days on Focus on the Family. And I hope you've been inspired by that story of Juanita and the great help that Michelle has been offering all of us about saving and becoming debt-free, living more simply, and giving generously. Now, you can get a copy of Michelle's book, The 21-Day Financial Fast, from us here at Focus on the Family. It's a terrific step-by-step guide on getting your finances in order. Call 800, the letter A, and the word family, or stop by focusonthefamily.ca. And one of those aspects of being financially fit, if you will, as we've talked about, is in giving. And uh, in that vein, let me just ask you to consider making 
a financial contribution to the work here of Focus on the Family to help us do ministry in the name of Christ. Through these radio programs, our website, events, uh, our social media presence, counseling, and so much more, we're seeing lives changed in amazing ways every day. And through your contribution, you're making that possible. So uh, Carrie shared with us that Focus saved her marriage after a very difficult year and a half. This radio broadcast had a huge impact on their marriage. And you can help listeners like Carrie and others when you donate generously today when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.